Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we come before you this morning to declare that it is full of your glory. And we thank you, Father, for joining us this morning as we can just experience uh, your glory as we found us as Christians come together, Lord, to be your church. I pray that you would just join with us this morning as we express our love for you. Lord, that you would just come down with us and just join with us in a mighty way. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. And here we prepare for the advent of Christ at Christmas, the third candle is the candle of joy as we remember with joy that Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. When we light this candle, we focus on the promise of the prophet, Jesus Christ, who brings the good news of forgiveness from our sins and a new relationship with God. And the candle reminds us of the importance of God's word. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for our sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to fulfill and proclaim the good news of reconciliation. We put our trust in you when you said through Moses that the secret things belong to Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. It has pleased you to send the very word, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to reveal to us your great promises. And it is in those promises that we hold to with faith and find our hope. Send your spirit to reveal and teach us the truth this morning. And help us to respond to your word this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Landon is going to come and preach to us here in a moment. Mine is third in a series of five that we're doing. So today we're going to be looking at the promise of a prophet. And we're going to start by reading Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. Say a prayer. Heavenly Father, it's my first time talking from the pulpit, and we just pray, Lord, that you would give me strength and the ability to just speak truth, and that congregation might be gracious and forgiving me for all of the faults that I will make in this endeavor, and just allow your truth, Lord, to speak clearly this morning, help us to let it be a chance to really realign ourselves to make sure that we are focusing this Christmas season on you and not on ourselves, and remembering that Tried as it may sound, Jesus is the reason for the season, that we celebrate all of this because something incredibly miraculous and 
beyond human comprehension happened when uh, you came to earth and became man and died on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that you would allow this time to just be honoring to you and allow us to really dive in and just be able to pull these eternal truths out of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So our first week, we had the promise of a Savior. And so we kind of talked about this idea that Christ came specifically to die on behalf of us as sinful people. Kind of an aside, I went to Chipotle the other day, and on the bag, there was a little quote from Judd Apatow, who's a comedy director. He's directed a few comedic movies, but it was this three-paragraph mini-thing kind of talking about what it means to be a good person. And it was kind of odd to read it because it was kind of felt like him just showing how he was a good person through this whole thing. But like the whole thing was kind of wrapped up in the idea of treat other people well, make sure you don't hurt the environment, and vote for politicians that agree with your worldview. And like that was his definition of what it meant to be kind of a good person. And that just kind of made me think and realize the idea that you know, we think of ourselves as good people kind of inherently. We want to think of ourselves as having done something good or being worthwhile in and of ourselves for the works that we do. And when you do that, you kind of forget the promise of a savior because if you're good, why do you need someone to save you? So it was good to go over that and be reminded of the fact that we are sinful people, that we do need someone greater than us who can come in on our behalf so that when we stand before a holy God, we've got someone there to intercede on our behalf and take that blame for us. Then the week after that, we had the promise of a priest. That was also very important because Christ has to be able to span that distance between a person and God. And I think it's in Job. Job talks about this idea of a daysman. Uh, that's like, I really like the King James Version of the Bible. It's a little thick to get through. But there's one verse where he's kind of crying out to God and saying, who's going to come and on my behalf span this distance between myself and God? Who can intercede on my behalf? And he uses the word daysman to talk about who can be that person. And way back when, in the Middle Ages, there was a guy called a daysman, and he used to walk from town to town. And his job was he would show up somewhere, and there'd be an argument between two people, and he'd put his hand on the shoulder of one man, and he'd put his hand on the shoulder of the other man, and he'd say, now you tell me what happened. And this guy could talk, and he would speak through the daysman and say, this is what happened. And then he would look over at this guy and say, okay, and what he say, was that right? And it would just be this back and forth of, an impartial third party standing between two people who were wronged and repairing that relationship. And that was just such a pretty picture that we've kind of lost in the newer versions of the translation because we don't have that office anymore. That idea of someone who can stand between us, the person, and God, the holy, and be able to allow for communication. So that was promise of a priest. And then today, we're going to look at promise of a prophet. We're going to go back real quick to our verse in Deuteronomy. So this was uh, right before the Israelites were about to go into the promised land. And Moses has been told, you're not allowed to go because of Moses striking the rock and disobeying God and all that. So God said, you're not allowed to go into the promised land. So this is right before they're about to go over. Moses is going to die and everyone's saying, what are we going to do? You know, we're going to get over there and there's all these people. They have their pagan gods and everything. Who are we going to follow? And Moses speaks to God and God says, don't worry, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So he gives this promise to Israel. He says, don't worry. There's going to be someone who's always going to be there to help guide you. And so, natural question is, what is a prophet? God says, I'm going to give you this thing. So people ask, well, what in the world is this thing that you're going to give us? And the thing we think of when we think of a prophet is a guy wearing robes. Usually he's got a stick because that makes you look cool. (laughs) 
And then, you know, he's got to have a big beard. Uh, he probably lives in a cave. He stands on mountaintops, looks out over distances, looks really cool. And one of the defining things that people always think about when they think about prophets is this idea of someone who says something that's going to come in the future. He shows up, he says, this shall happen, and then he disappears. And you think, okay, well, there was a prophecy. Because, you know, prophecy is something prophetic, something that's coming. So when we think of prophet, we only think in terms of that. But prophets were actually a little bit more than that. So we're going to kind of look into the whole of what it was. So kind of on in a grand view is a prophet is someone chosen by God to speak on his behalf. When a prophet shows up, when he speaks, he is speaking on behalf of God. So looking kind of out through the history of stuff, we had Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha. Really annoying that those two had a name so close to each other. I can't tell you for how long I was convinced they were the same person. It's like the two Johns in the New Testament. There's John the Baptist and then John the guy who wrote the book. Oh. Anyway, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos. These are all Old Testament prophets. So these men all spoke on behalf of God. And so one of the distinctives of that was that they weren't necessarily predicting the future, but they are always speaking on behalf of God because not all these guys gave prophecies sometimes like Nathan when he followed around King David and Solomon, his job was to advise the king. He didn't necessarily always give prophecies. So when we're thinking about prophets, sometimes they would prophesy, but that wasn't necessarily always a function that they had to do. So now we kind of know what a prophet is, now we have to know why prophets. Prophets were needed first because people were afraid of the Lord. Uh, you hear this all the time, this idea that you want to know the answer to something, and you say, well, if God would just like show up in my living room, tell me what to do, or, you know, like, talk to me directly. That would be really, really nice. But let me tell you, that's a bad, bad idea. Because every time in the Bible someone sees God and he actually speaks to them directly, their immediate response is to fall on the ground, flat on their face, and say, I'm not worthy, and shake and tremble in fear. Like, you don't really want God talking directly to you because he is so holy and so awesome and has such majesty that it's just terrifying, the thought of God speaking directly to you. And that's what happened to the people in Exodus. That's kind of why we had the whole passage in Deuteronomy, because God had come previously. Look at Exodus chapter 20, 18 to 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. And the people stood far off with Moses near to the thick of the darkness where God was. So that idea, like when God showed up to talk to Israel, it was a display of awesome power. And it was so terrifying to them that they said, we can't deal with this. We need someone who's going to talk with us that's a little more down to earth. And so they asked Moses, please, you need to be the guy that goes and talks to God and then comes back to us because we can't interface with him directly. And so in our passage in Deuteronomy, we get to see when Moses is talking to them and he's saying, when you said this, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. He was referencing that moment in Exodus when they were at the mountain and God was speaking to Israel and they were so terrified of him. And so purpose, we have what a prophet is. A prophet is a guy who speaks on behalf of God, doesn't necessarily have to predict the future. He can, but he always speaks on behalf of God. They're needed because people are terrified of God speaking directly to us, and so we need someone to help bring that message. And then secondarily, prophets we need because people need a verified source for revelation, right? So if someone comes to you and says, God told me that you need to give me 100 bucks, 
you go, that's great, show me some proof. Because if God really wants you to give me 100 bucks, I go, I should give you 100 bucks, because God commanded it. You got to prove it to me, right? It's not just going to pull out a 100 Benjamin and give it to you. We have prophets so that we know when that guy talks, we know that he is actually speaking on behalf of God. What he is saying is something to be trusted. And so now we have to ask the next question. How do you know they're telling the truth? And this is great. We're just like going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. It's like, what's a prophet? And then you just drill down and down and down and down. So you've got a prophet who speaks on behalf of God. They're there so that you don't have to be terrified because God's not speaking directly to you. And you know that they're telling the truth because they're the prophet who speaks on behalf of God. So now we have to say, well, we have to have some way to test them. There's lots of people out there that claim to speak on behalf of God. Most of them are lying. So how do you know that someone is actually telling the truth? And God's very kind to us. He actually provides a means for us to figure it out. So first off, everything they say must agree with everything that came before it. So go ahead and take your Bibles. We're going to turn to Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. God is not a God of contradictions. He's not a God who lies. And so when he says something, it is true then, it's true now, and it will be true for all eternity. It could be a fulfilled prophecy. It may be something that has finished and passed, Old Covenant, New Covenant, things like that. But when he speaks something, it is always true. And so if someone comes to you and tells you something that doesn't agree with all the other stuff that came before it, you immediately know red flag, guy's a liar. He's trying to just grab the authority that he wants to have in, it in order to speak for God, in order to get you to do things. So that's the first requirement for knowing that they're legit. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. This one is, if he predicts the future, the prediction must absolutely come true, which is another function of the idea of God doesn't lie. God being able to span time, he's going to make predictions about the future, and they have to come true. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of God has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So we've got, so far, two requirements. Everything they say has to agree with everything that came before it, and if it's going to predict the future, it has to come true. So if he says there's going to be a person born of a virgin, that's going to be your Messiah in the case of Jesus. And then along comes a guy born like anybody else and claims to be the Messiah. You can immediately go, hey, the prediction that was made previously is not coming true here, so we can discount all these things that you've said. And so then number three, if they're going to perform miracles, those miracles, their job is to validate the message of the person who came. So like when Jesus came and he performed miracles, there were miraculous things that he did, but the reason that he was doing them was in order to let people know, hey, you should pay attention to the message that I'm providing to you. Raising people from the dead, healing the blind, making the lame walk, these things were benefits that were given to that person, but the reason for doing them ultimately in terms of the grand scheme of things was so that Jesus could validate his message and say, when I am claiming to be the son of God, when I am claiming to be a prophet, you should listen to me because I'm obviously able to do signs and wonders. And so kind of looking at some of these passages here, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. 
the reason Jesus had to say it is because he was saying pretty, I mean, he was making radical claims, claiming to be the Son of God, to be Messiah, to be God come in the flesh. To a, a Jewish mind at that time, especially given kind of all of the Hellenistic culture that was coming in with the uh, Romans and the Greeks, they've got this whole pantheon that are basically just humans big, like, you know, Zeus and Hermes and all these guys. There's nothing about them that defines them as unique or separate from humanity. They're kind of just people that happen to be really, really powerful if you look at just the way that they act and everything. And the Jews are specifically trying to preserve themselves against a culture that's trying to take them over. In their minds, creating these harsh separations, saying like God is something completely separate from humanity. He is something unique, he is whole, he's one. And for then someone to show up as a man and say, I am God come in the flesh. It's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around how radical of an idea that was because we've become so accustomed to this idea. You know, ever since we were a kid, we've been told, Jesus is God. But to them, that was something completely fresh, completely new. That's not something that looking through the Old Testament, they understood. And so when Christ came and made these radical claims, he had to verify it through doing miracles. And so when he says, if you're not going to believe me, believe these miracles and know that I have this power, and that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The next one, Hebrews chapter 2, 3 through 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And then even uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Even a Pharisee, someone who was a ruler of the Jews who really would have preferred not to think that Jesus was who he claimed to be, was willing to acknowledge, we know that you came from God because you do these incredible signs and miracles. So we've got these three tests that we can use to figure out if someone's a prophet. They do signs and miracles. They don't have to, but if they do, it's there to validate their message. Everything they say has to agree with everything that came before it. And if they're going to predict the future, it has to come true. Signs and wonders do not a prophet make. There's people out there, I think of magicians that were around with Pharaoh when Moses was trying to compete over whether what he was saying was true or what the magicians were saying were true, and they were doing miraculous things, whether or not they were using tricks to do them. Who knows, you know, throwing their staff on the ground, having it turn into a snake. Who knows if they were doing, you know, kind of parlor tricks or not when they were doing that. But regardless, there have been people throughout history who have done things that seem miraculous. But because of those other two tests that God has given us, you can discount what they've said because either what they say does not agree with things that came before it or what they predict about the future hasn't come true. And when the Antichrist comes, he's going to do miraculous things. He's going to do incredible things, and there are going to be so many people who are led astray by that. But the reason they'll be led astray is because they don't have all three of these present in their mind, thinking about the fact that we need to have all three of these in order to trust what someone is going to say, in order to consider them a prophet. So then, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, thinking specifically about the Antichrist or anyone like them, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Pretty heavy words, you think about it. The necessary requirements in order to know that someone is a prophet. Doesn't have to have the robe, doesn't have to have the staff, doesn't have to look out over great distances like a wise man. But if he fits all those necessary criteria, then you know for sure that he's a prophet.
now I know that. That's helpful. Why does any of this matter? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the historical context. So Israel is yearning for the Messiah at this moment when Jesus is going to be born. We look at kind of all the various things that kind of stack up on top of each other to let us know. There's been no revelation for 400 years. So the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, one before that, Zechariah, he was the last prophet of the Old Testament. That's been 400 years since we've had him. So for 400 years, Israel has been laboring, and there hasn't been a single prophet to tell them anything more about what God has in store for them. That's probably, what, eight generations worth of people just waiting and yearning and looking for something. They have all these promises of the Old Testament, and there's been no one to provide that missing link to let them know what more God is asking for them. They just have what he's given so far. And so these people are yearning for a Messiah. They're under the captivity of a pagan ruler, Rome. The Sadducees have made a travesty of the temple. They're the guys, every time when you showed up at the temple to make your sacrifice, they'd look at your sheep that you brought that was perfectly acceptable and go, oh, I don't know, man, you know, this, this hoof, it's got a little blemish on it. I think probably not going to be acceptable, but my cousin over here, never mind the family uh, resemblance, he, uh, he can provide you with the necessary uh, lamb that is without blemish, so then you can do that. And so, like, the, the people were bitter against the Sadducees because they controlled the temple, which is where you had to go to make your sacrifice, but the people who controlled it had turned it into a money-changing operation. And so it was frustrating for them. They wanted someone to come and actually administer what they believed with honesty and truth. Many of the Jews are starting to embrace this Hellenistic culture. The way that Rome tended to conquer the world was they would go in with their armies, they'd take over, and then they tried to assimilate the people. They tried to get them to adopt Roman culture because if you did that, then they became taxpayers like everybody else and kind of just adopted the same way of living and it became really easy to rule them. If you didn't get them to adopt your culture, it was really difficult because they were constantly trying to get rid of you because they didn't like you. And the Jews were definitely one of those uh, categories of people. So a lot of them are starting to adopt this Hellenistic culture. People are seeing their kind of culture disappear. And so then we look at the Bible and we find examples of specific Jews who kind of picture this nationwide fervor. So we've got Simeon, a man righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We have the prophet as Anna. She spoke of him, Jesus, to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. This is right after she had met baby Jesus when uh, Mary had brought him to the temple. And then Mary herself in her Magnificat. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Something to remember, people understood that the Messiah was going to be a virgin birth. And so the whole nation is just looking for this. And Mary in particular would have understood as a young maid of Israel, she would have been thinking like, what if I'm the girl that gets chosen to be, you know, this is kind of like sanctified imagination, imagining where she's at in terms of culturally, you know, this stuff isn't in the Bible what she's thinking, but I'm trying, trying to like, let's put ourselves in her feet and think, you know, we've got all of these things. We haven't heard from God in 400 years. We're under the rule of Rome. The temple is being run by a bunch of crooks who are trying to steal our money. You know, we're seeing our culture disappear as it's getting sucked up into this Roman culture. And in the midst of all that, you've got Mary, who's this remarkably mature young woman. I mean, you just look at the way that she reacted when the angel came to her. She understood what this was. She knew what it meant when the angel came to her and said, you are going to be the one to carry Christ, which, sorry if this kind of ruins the song for you, but uh, Mary, did you know? She knew. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the tension kind of bleeds out of it, but kind of sets the stage for what's going to go on, which is baby Jesus. 
who is just the cutest little baby you've ever seen. I mean, this has got to be like the best birth the world has ever seen. I mean, look at these guys. They got the baby not crying. They've got perfect hair, relaxed, well-rested, clothes totally unstained, cleaned. They've had manicures. Best birth the world has ever seen, right? Not actually how it happened. But, a little joke aside, all of this yearning and everything, this desire for a Messiah, and in the midst of that is born Jesus, fulfilling all of these incredible prophecies. Returning then to where we were in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So this, the birth of Christ, he is that prophet like me, that prophet like Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you in verse 18. Let's examine that real quick. Jesus, a prophet like unto Moses. How was he similar to Moses in that prophet in Deuteronomy 18? Both Moses and Jesus were sent from God. Both were threatened by wicked kings. Both spent their early years in Egypt, miraculously protected from those who sought their lives. Both rejected the possibility to become rulers in this age. Moses was raised as a son in a royal family. He was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. He could have enjoyed a lavish lifestyle. He could have been a powerful ruler. But he set that all aside so that he could serve his people, Israel. Satan, in the same way, when Jesus was out in the wilderness and being tempted, offered Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus turned it down because he knew that his reason for coming was to suffer and die on behalf of his people. Some other ways that they're the same, they were both initially rejected by the Jews. Both knew God face to face. God spoke directly with both Moses and Jesus. All the other prophets, they received their revelation through visions or dreams. Both gave uh, the people bread from heaven and performed various miracles. Both were appointed as saviors of Israel. Moses was Israel's deliverer from the bondage of Pharaoh, getting them out of there. Jesus says Israel's deliverer from the bondage of Satan. Out of curiosity, anybody seen Exodus, Gods and Kings, the new thing? That's the whole, I'm kind of curious what that's like. Whenever Hollywood tries to do a Bible story, it yeah. <laughs> doesn't always turn out the greatest. Uh, both were mediators of covenant of blood. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant the Ten Commandments, the law. Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant, the covenant that we have now. Both offered to die on behalf of the people's sins. Both of their faces shone with the glory of heaven, Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai, and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness to heal his people, so Jesus was lifted up on a cross to heal all believers from their sin. That's such a wonderful picture to me that... We need to remember as Christians not to forget the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't make sense outside of the Old Testament. And when we start seeing those beautiful through lines, the way that God has planned, Moses raising up the serpent in the wilderness happened 5,000 years before Christ being born. And then along came Christ. And in the same way that Moses lifted up a bronze serpent in the wilderness to heal people from poison that was running through their veins, Jesus was lifting up on a cross in order to heal us from the poison of sin that runs through our veins. Just the metaphorical image and the way that God has planned out the course of human history. It's incredible. How does Jesus perform this office of prophet that he and Moses both fulfilled? He reveals us the will of God for our salvation. We're going to turn to John chapter 17 real quick. We're going to read verses 8 and 26. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you have sent me. And dropping down to verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
So when Christ came to fulfill this role of prophet, he does it so that he can tell us about this great plan that God has for our salvation. So the people, they recognized Jesus as a prophet. They saw him and said, you have to be a prophet. And we're going to run through some real quick laundry list of all the crazy ways that people kind of acknowledge that he was a prophet. When he fed the 5,000, they all said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They, they saw a miracle and said, this is outside of something that someone could do with trickery. Like, this is miraculous. You must be the prophet. The raising of the dead. You want to do like something to convince people that you're legit. Raise somebody from the dead. God saying, you know, a great prophet has been risen among them, fear seizing them because of the miraculousness of that moment. Woman at the well said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet because of the way that he knew intuitively that she was not living the way that she should, that she had five husbands, as it were. Man healed of his blindness. They said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. And then, of course, after Jesus ascends, Peter then looks back to that same verse that we're examining. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And Peter's in Acts tying that specifically to Christ, saying, look, this was the one that was long promised. This is the prophet that we have been waiting for. So the people, they recognized Jesus as a prophet. What they didn't recognize is Jesus as a Messiah. And that's, that distinction is incredibly important because... Prophets are someone who speaks on behalf of the people. The Messiah is the one who came to die on our behalf. He's, he's so much more than just a prophet, and that's why we're going through this series. Him being a prophet is just a chunk of who Jesus was. Jesus as Savior, Jesus as priest, Jesus as prophet, Jesus as king, and a king who is going to return. That whole package makes him Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus as Messiah is something so much more than Jesus as prophet. But the people, they didn't want to recognize that because to recognize that required that they then submit to what he was telling them. They didn't like a lot of the things he was telling them. So now we're going to look at Jesus, a prophet far beyond Moses, something so much more. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He doesn't just give prophecy. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is kind of funny. If... You guys get that question, you know, where that someone says, if you had a time machine and you could go back to anywhere in time, where would you go? This would be probably pretty high on my list as far as places to go because they're on the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus had just been crucified. Everyone is in hiding and convinced, you know, oh, well, he said he was the prophet, but I guess he's not because, you know, he just got crucified by Rome and he's dead. And so Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. These guys don't recognize him. He's chatting with them and saying, hey, what do you guys think about all this? They're like, well, we thought he was the prophet, but obviously he's not. And then he just like schools them out of the Old Testament. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of things concerning himself. I mean, do you want to talk about a tour de force of exegesis? Christ himself going back to the Old Testament and going, How did you not see this? And then starting with Moses and going through the whole thing and saying, this is all talking about me and explaining it to them. You go back with an audio recorder and just pick that up. That's a lesson. Then beyond that, Isaiah 53, 5 through 6, we're just going to kind of look real quick at one of those prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Isaiah 53 is very common this time of year because it so clearly speaks specifically to Christ. Chapter 3, starting in verse 5. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah writing 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, talking about the suffering that he was going to undergo, the suffering that Messiah was going to have to endure on our behalf. And along came Christ and endured, in so doing, fulfilled these prophecies. So not only did he fulfill prophecy, but he was also the source of revelation. We read John 1, 1 through 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll just jump there real quick. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is the actual source of revelation. Previous prophets have all spoken on behalf of God, but Christ, being God come in the flesh, simply had to speak, and he was the source of that revelation. Going then to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, starting in chapter 21. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. So you see there Christ taking on this authority, saying, you've heard people say previously, you have heard prophets previously say these things, but I say to you, speaking with divine authority, not just speaking on behalf of God, but speaking as God, I'm telling you, this is the new law, the new covenant that is coming down. So Christ was something far beyond Moses because he didn't just hear what God was saying and then tell people, he told people directly because he was God himself. Finally, he speaks with authority. Now we'll turn to Matthew chapter 7, just one page to the right there, starting in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So he wasn't a guy that just looked at the Old Testament and said, well, this is what the Old Testament says, therefore this. He was both one who brought the Old Testament with him and then said, and I'm going to add unto it. And here's the things beyond that that I'm going to say. He spoke as one who knew that no one could contradict him because he spoke absolute truth. So he was something far beyond Moses. He was both someone who proclaimed prophecy and someone who fulfilled prophecy. And just really quickly, it's going to be like Blitzkrieg. Here it goes. Jesus' lineage had been told He was to be the seed of the woman. He was to be the seed of Abraham. He was of Judah and then of David. The deliverer was to be born at a certain time in a designated city, and his birth was to be preceded by the ministry of a forerunner, John the Baptist. His ministry was to commence in Galilee. He was also to enter Jerusalem, where he possessed the temple. The Messiah's ministry was to be punctuated with miracles, yet he would be despised, rejected by the nation's rulers, betrayed by someone close to him, Judas, abandoned for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He would be smitten on the cheek. He would be spat on. He would be mocked, scourged. His hands and his feet would be pierced, yet none of his bones would be broken. His body was to be buried with the wealthy and was to remain uncorrupted because shortly after dying, he would rise miraculously from the grave. That's just a really truncated piece of all the prophecies that were filled by Christ. Just to see how much he fulfilled, if you had any doubt whatsoever about the authenticity of Christ, take the time to go back through the Old Testament and look at all of the incredible things that were said about him and then how many of them he fulfilled to the letter when he showed up and lived on this earth. So here's just a quick little thing from a guy named Peyton James Glogue. The Messianic prophecies extended over a thousand years. They are interspersed throughout all the books of the Old Testament. They're found in the book of Moses, the oldest writer, and in the prophecy of Malachi, the last of the prophets. They are numerous. If all were to be collected from the sacred writings and if the secondary and typical prophecies were to be included, it would be found to be no exaggeration to affirm that the Old Testament was pervaded with the Messianic idea. 
They're varied. They relate to minute particulars as well as to great events. Some of them are seemingly contradictory. Some represent the Messiah as a mighty king, and others speak of him as a man of sorrows. But all these prophecies, when examined, will be found to have received their fulfillment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Not one will be discovered that is inconsistent with the history of his life. That's just a more academic way of kind of talking about what we just said, this idea that so much was spoken about Christ. And when he lived, he fulfilled every single one of them. And there's more yet to be fulfilled. There are many things that were seemingly contradictory. Messiah, both as a mighty king and as a man of sorrows. Theologians describe this as when you see a mountain from a distance, you see all these peaks, it's just like kind of this beautiful, seems almost flat picture of all these mountain peaks. But if you then walked over to them and stood on one of the peaks, you'd see this massive valley between two of the peaks that you didn't see when you were way off in the distance. And for prophets looking down through the corridor of history, as it were, they were predicting things and saying, well, Messiah is going to be a mighty king and he's going to be a man of sorrows. And those things lined up right next to each other and they're going, okay, I can only imagine they must have been scratching those awesome prophet beards they had, going, what in the world does this mean? How is he a mighty king and a man of sorrows at the same time? And it's because of that effect of they were looking at the distance and they couldn't see the amount of time that was between man of sorrows and mighty king we, thankfully, are in that place where we're just on the other side of that man of sorrow's peak and we can see that valley till the time that Christ returns, this time as a mighty king. All of this allows us to have confidence in his word. We can see predictions that were made thousands upon thousands of years before they were happened and then being fulfilled down to the letter. We can have confidence in his sacrifice because of that. We can, when this thing says that Christ's sacrifice was efficacious, that it was uh, sufficient for what we needed, we can believe it because we've seen all of these innumerable proofs that were brought forward. Because we have confidence in his sacrifice, we can have confidence in our salvation. We can know that we are saved. And because of all of that, we can give glory to God. And that's the ultimate goal of humanity, to enjoy and to give glory to God with him forever in eternity. This time of year, we tend to get all kind of caught up in the nonsense of, you know, lights and untangling stuff and getting gifts for everybody. And it's very difficult sometimes to keep ourselves centered and remember why we do all this stuff, why we even have this thing Christmas. And so if you're having trouble this year kind of keeping yourself centered, contemplate the promise of a Savior, someone who came on your behalf because you in and of yourself are not sufficient to save yourself from the sin that infects you. You must have someone who died on your behalf, the promise of a priest, that daysman, someone who can stand between you and God, who can place his hand on your shoulder, can place his hand on God's shoulder, and he can intercede on your behalf in order to provide that communion. Today, we looked at the promise of a prophet, this idea of someone who spoke on behalf of God, someone who fulfills prophecy as well as proclaims prophecy. So if you're having trouble kind of focusing on Christ, consider all of these different categories and just meditate upon them. Someone who died on your behalf, someone who intercedes for you between you and God, someone who spoke with divine authority and fulfilled thousands upon thousands of years of scripture, someone who is going to return again to reign as a king. And so that same person is the person that when you pray, listens to you intimately, counts the hairs on your head, knows when a sparrow falls out of the sky, and yet considers you as someone made in his image as that which is most precious to him, so much so that he would come to earth to die on your behalf. That will help you focus, if nothing else will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for this time of year. We thank you for the, for the blessing of just a place where we can gather together, where we can do so without a fear of a governmental agency or other people coming and trying to cause us harm because of things we believe. So many places in the world, Lord, where they do not have that luxury, where even now they are trying to celebrate your birth, and yet they don't have a place where they can get together openly to do so. And we just pray, Lord, that when we enjoy all of this luxury and all of this ability to come together and investigate your word corporately, that you might help us to be thankful for it, help us to treasure it, and to make the most of it. We thank you, Lord, that everyone was able to come out today. This time of year is just filled with love, with family, and the desire to serve others. And we pray, Lord, that as we do those things, that we would keep our focus on that which is most important that you came in the flesh in order to die on our behalf and to be raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. We pray this on your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.